Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. In today's brief, we'll analyze the situation on the front, take a close look at Crimea, and talk about attackums. I'm Rob Gaudet, and today is Tuesday, September 26, 2023. And happy belated New Year to those celebrating or who did celebrate Yom Kippur. You're listening to the Ukraine War Brief Podcast. We usually bring you up to speed on the war in Ukraine in about 20 minutes or less, but this episode will be a little bit more extensive. Before we dive in today, do me a favor and pause the episode after these instructions. If you're able to give us a five-star review and rating and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to, that would help fund our work. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts associate more ratings with better content and promote the show in their algorithms. Not to be too creepy, but we can see thousands of you listen to the show. We know you're out there. Another thing that helps others find the show is if you listen to the same episode more than once. So if you miss something here or there, by all means, be kind, rewind. It really helps others find it. If you don't feel we've earned your five-star review, send us an email at social at borlingen.media with your feedback. We'd love to hear it. That's social at B-O-R- L-I-N-G-O-N dot media. If you want to listen ad-free, receive our written brief, complete with maps, pictures, videos, and audio, you can find it on Substack. The links are in the description. Our episodes are usually for paying subscribers, but we've made this episode free to everyone. Not only is today's content really important, but it'll give you a chance to see if Substack will work for you. We cannot thank you enough. And a quick shout out to Good Pods, who rated us number four out of 100 on their news podcast rankings. Thank you so much. Yulia is on assignment in Ukraine, and Linnea will be back later today with more news. I'm traveling back to Lviv later today to cover the largest technology conference in Europe, which is scheduled for September 29th through October 1st. I think I left my heart in Ukraine, air raids and all. We have a lot to cover today, including loads of analysis. First, two errors and omissions. In a previous episode, we may have implied that former spokesperson for the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or AFU, and Deputy Defense Minister, Hanna Maliar, was dismissed for announcing the liberation of settlements too soon. We did not intend to give that impression. All deputy defense ministers were dismissed because a new minister of defense, Rustem Umerov, took the reins. It's standard practice in many governments, including Ukraine's, to allow a cabinet-level official to build their own team. In another episode, we said Norway started preventing cars with Russian license plates from entering the country, which was true. However, I wanted to add some additional context. The European Union and Norway voted last year to block any cars with Russian license plates from entering its territory. Since only Norway, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland border Russia and Belarus, these countries received more press attention when they actually implemented the ban at their borders. I wanted to clarify that all EU member states plus Norway imposed this ban, 
but the countries bordering Russia and Belarus are the ones responsible for implementing the policy on behalf of the customs union. Thank you for your understanding. Now, on to news and analysis from Ukraine, starting from the front. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, published their morning reports from Friday, September 22nd to Sunday, September 24th, and stated there were 76 combat engagements, and that the AFU continued to conduct offensive operations in the Bakhmut and Melitopol operational directions. Russian losses included 1,380 personnel, 24 tanks, 31 armored combat vehicles, 96 artillery systems, eight multiple-launch rocket systems, or MLRS, and one anti-aircraft system. Ukraine is still systematically targeting artillery systems, averaging over 30 a day. In the past couple of days, Ukraine has been destroying almost 40 a day. Unfortunately, no additional submarines were destroyed over the weekend. Russia continued its brutal campaign of airstrikes against civilians, civilian infrastructure, and grain logistics infrastructure over the weekend as well. On September 21st, Russia launched 43 KH-55, KH-101, and KH-555 missiles from Tu-95MS strategic bombers west of Engels Air Base in multiple waves. The strategic bombers are used for long-range attacks from deep inside Russia, and they take off many hours before their missiles enter Ukrainian airspace. 36 of the 43 missiles were intercepted by Ukrainian air defenses. Russia also used an S-300 anti-aircraft missile for a ground attack in Kharkiv that same night. Two nights later, on September 23rd, Russia launched 15 Shahed-131-136 kamikaze drones from Primorsko-Aktarsk, a coastal city in Krasnodar Krai, Russia, across from Ukraine in the Sea of Azov. 14 out of the 15 drones were destroyed by the AFU. During the day on Sunday, September 24th, Russia launched three Landsat attack drones and four reconnaissance drones, which were all destroyed. Later that night, Russia carried out one of its most menacing air attacks in a long time. A total of 12 caliber cruise missiles were launched from a small ship near Feodosia Crimea and from a submarine in the Black Sea off of Novosiysk, Russia. Russia also launched two P-800 Onyx anti-ship missiles used for a ground attack from a craft near Sevastopol. Caliber and Onyx missiles are especially dangerous because they're capable of traveling at hypersonic speeds. In addition to the missiles, Russia phoned the Imam of flying mopeds, Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran, and launched 19 more Shahed kamikaze drones. All but one Caliber missile and all 19 Shaheds were destroyed by air defense. For Yom Kippur, Russia attacked the historic city of Odessa with its ancient Jewish population by destroying the unoccupied Hotel Odessa and grain storage facilities. Videos and pictures are on our substack. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, tweeted a picture of the wrecked Odessa Hotel, saying, quote, A pathetic attempt at retaliation for our successful hit on the Russian Navy headquarters in Sevastopol, end quote. A popular Ukrainian telegram channel that monitors air raid activity said, quote, Russian intelligence level, firing missiles at an abandoned building. We'll do our own thing, end quote. In its September 23rd assessment, the Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, reported that Ukrainian military officials stated that the Ukrainian counteroffensive would continue in the winter. I agree with this assessment. Brigadier General Alexander Tarnavsky, 
the general leading Ukraine's counteroffensive along the southern front, told CNN that he expected a major Ukrainian breakthrough after their forces reached Tokmak, a major Russian stronghold in western Zaporizhia Oblast, and that it's important for Ukrainian forces to retain the battlefield initiative that they currently hold. Tarnavsky also stated that Ukrainian operations will continue throughout the winter as Ukrainian forces are mostly advancing on foot and that inclement weather will thus not have a major negative effect on the counteroffensive. Ukrainian Main Military Intelligence Directorate, or GUR, head Lieutenant General Kirilo Buldanov echoed a similar assessment about continued Ukrainian winter operations in a rare, extensive interview with The War Zone, published online on September 22nd. While seasonal weather can slow ground movements and add to logistical challenges, it certainly won't impose a definite end to Ukrainian counteroffensive operations. I agree with the ISW that the culmination of the Ukrainian counteroffensive will likely depend on the Russian to Ukrainian force ratio as well as on Western aid to Ukraine. I wanted to expand on this a bit. Based on patterns developing in the battle space, and based on the information the Ukraine war brief team has obtained from new sources, I assess that the success of the counteroffensive will be viewed and therefore should currently be measured in terms of breakthroughs not just along the immediate front, but in occupied territories beyond the front lines, especially in Crimea. I cannot share certain information to protect operational security, but I'm able to use information publicly available to make certain deductions. All AFU senior leadership, and President Zelensky, have said that Crimea will be free by winter. As I move through each theater of operations, note how each operational direction may impact another. For example, Mike Hoffman and Rob Lee, in a July episode of the War on the Rocks podcast, wondered why Ukraine deployed the 3rd Separate Assault Brigade, among AFU's most experienced, in the Bakhmut operational area, and why they weren't deployed in the Zaporizhia offensives, either near Staromayorske or south of Orekhiv near Robotine. Well, they got their answer earlier in September. The 3rd Separate Assault Brigade routed and destroyed the 72nd Separate Motorized Rifle Brigade, killing its military intelligence commander, senior leadership, and nearly all remaining troops. It makes strategic sense to pin down Russian troops around Bakhmut, taking relatively fewer losses to degrade Russian combat power and limit Russia's ability to redeploy forces to other areas of the front. Ukraine used less experienced troops to break through the so-called Sirovikin lines in Zaporizhia, which were designed by General Sirovikin to be a meat grinder. Ukraine took its time progressing through each defensive layer because, unlike Russia, Ukraine cares about reducing casualties from both a moral and strategic standpoint. The AFU lacked air superiority and the necessary kit to execute combined arms maneuvers that NATO militaries would have used to breach these defensive lines. Let's review the situation on the front by starting in the most eastern part of the country, in Luhansk Oblast. If you don't have a map of Ukraine handy, Luhansk Oblast borders Russia's Belgorod Oblast to the north, Russia's Voronezh Oblast to the east, Ukraine's Donetsk Oblast to the south and southwest, and Kharkiv Oblast to the west. The front line starts where Kharkiv and Luhansk Oblasts border Belgorod, and runs south along the Kharkiv-Luhansk border until it's about halfway down the border between Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. The front line moves clockwise through Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson oblasts. Russians occupy a tiny amount of Kharkiv oblast and the Crimean Peninsula. Maps are available on our substack, and again, I've made today's written brief and episode available to all, ad-free.
In the Eastern Theater, Russian forces continued offensive operations along the kupiansk svatova kremina line over the weekend, but didn't make any gains. A bit further south, in Donetsk Oblast, the GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled Russian attacks near Bilohorivka, which is about 33 kilometers south of Kremina. Ukrainian Eastern Group of Forces spokesperson Captain Ilya Yevlosh stated that Russian forces continue to transfer reserves to the Kupiansk and Liman directions and noted that the Russian attack near Bilohorivka was the first Russian attack in these directions in, quote, a long time. Various Russian mill bloggers made unsubstantiated claims of gains along this axis. Ukrainian forces reportedly conducted ground attacks near Kremina on September 24th, but did not make any confirmed advances. A Russian mill blogger claimed that Ukrainian forces improved their positions near Novoyehorivka. Russian sources, including the Russian MOD, claimed on September 23rd and 24th that Russian forces repelled Ukrainian attacks near Torske which is 14 kilometers west of Kremina, and Serebryansky Woods, 11 kilometers south of Kremina. Moving down the front in Donetsk Oblast, Ukrainian forces continued counteroffensive operations on Bakhmut's southern flank and forced Russian troops to retreat behind the railway line east of Klishchivka, which is about 6 kilometers southwest of Bakhmut. The GSAFU confirmed that Ukrainian forces are continuing assaults south of Bakhmut, and Captain Yevlush reiterated that Ukrainian positions are approximately three kilometers away from the Russian T-0513 highway G-lock. Although the ISW updated the map northwest of Bakhmut, showing potential Russian advances in Orihovo-Vasilivka, I don't agree that Russian advances there actually occurred. There is no geolocated evidence available from either side supporting this claim made by Russian mill bloggers, who have become more and more unreliable. Pixar didn't happen, bro. In my assessment, all evidence points to the AFU continuing to pin down, exhaust, and render combat ineffective or combat destroyed the Russian forces defending Bakhmut. No Russian G-locks are under Russian fire control, and the movement of Ukrainian forces even closer to one of the last G-locks in Klishchivka is putting an enormous pressure on Russian supply lines, morale, and combat effectiveness. Looking at an elevation map, the AFU holds the heights around Bakhmut, including outside Orihovo-Vasilivka, Yekhorivka, Khromova, Klishchivka, and Ivanivske. Various Russian sources claim that Russian forces made advances around Bakhmut, but none of the advances are accompanied by geolocated footage. Again, Pixar didn't happen. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled Russian assaults east of Botanivka, southeast of Bilohora, and near recently liberated Klishchivka. After securing the area west of the railway tracks, the AFU is now conducting offensive operations in Kordumivka. Ukrainian counteroffensive operations are continuing to draw and fix a significant contingent of Russian forces in the Bakhmut direction, which is their stated purpose. Russian forces continued defensive operations on the Donetsk city Avdiivka line, but did not advance. The general staff reported that Russian forces attempted to restore lost positions in the Avdiivka area and conducted unsuccessful offensive operations near Marinka and Povida. Preliminary reports show the AFU has likely expanded its control in Opitne. Continuing southwest along the front from Donetsk to the Donetsk-Zaporizhia border, little information was available at the time of this writing. Although the ISW and other analysts rely on Russian mill bloggers and Kremlin-backed sources, the Ukraine war brief puts no stock into their claims unless supported by pictures or videos that can be geolocated. 
They used to be more reliable, especially when they were complaining about withdrawals or losses, and sometimes they still are accurate when complaining about those things, but even those claims have become less reliable. Therefore, we have no updates in the Staromayorske Urzhaina direction for this episode. Moving on to the Southern Theater of Operations, the AFU has made a major advance in the Southern Push in Zaporizhia Oblast, in probably the most consequential area of the offensive along the front line. After months of tedious demining and brutal attritional warfare, Ukrainian forces are now operating heavy equipment beyond the third layer of the Syrovikin line. Over the weekend, the AFU turned a breakthrough of the three layers of Russia's defense in depth into a salient. A salient is a bulge or point at which an advancing force is able to launch further offensive operations. Geolocated footage shows armored vehicles such as tanks operating southeast of Robotne and Novoprokopivka and southwest of Vorbova. Okay, if I can just get a petty dig in, I'd love to see the Telegraph's Ukraine the Latest podcast host to pronounce that ten times fast. They're still saying Robotne. Satellite imagery shows signs of shelling and scorch marks in the settlement of Verbova, with southward movement of the scorch marks towards the settlements of Ocheretovate and Pishchenye. To be clear, the defense and depth structures of the trenches, dragon's teeth, and anti-tank and anti-personnel mines continue beyond just these first three main lines, but I don't believe Russia thought Ukraine could break through all three. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management System, or FIRMS, showed heat anomalies in between Novoferrovka and Verbova, likely indicating Ukrainian shelling on Russian-held positions, and efforts by Ukrainian forces to consolidate their positions east of Robotne and Novoprokopivka. The settlement of Ocheretovata is surrounded by two defensive layers. There are a total of three defensive obstacles just to reach the settlement. Although the quality of Russian forces is very likely degraded, and the continued defensive capability of those forces is unclear, the defensive layers must be manned for maximum effectiveness. The main Russian G-lock to Verbova was severed due to collapsed Russian defensive positions, likely creating issues for them defending that settlement. We agree with the ISW that Russian forces continue to expend combat power on counterattacking to hold current positions. However, the ISW assesses that Russians in this axis resist falling back to prepared defensive positions further south, while Ukrainian military analysts insist Russian forces are able to execute an organized retreat. Both may be true depending on the specific area, but on balance, we lend more weight to Ukrainian analysts. I can say from my own experience that they're much more likely to have well-placed sources in the Ukrainian military. Russian forces have indeed expended considerable amounts of manpower, materiel, and effort to hold the forwardmost defensive positions in not only southern Ukraine, but also in eastern Ukraine and Bakhmut. They only withdraw to subsequent defensive positions at the direct threat of Ukrainian advances, if they even get the chance to withdraw. Russian counteroffensive doctrine, called elastic defense, requires one echelon of Russian forces to slow a Ukrainian tactical advance, while a second echelon of forces counterattacks to push back that advance. Counterattacking requires significant morale and relatively strong combat capabilities, both of which Russians lack. The Katsaps, this is an impolite word for Russians I picked up and enjoy using from time to time, seem to be relying on relatively elite units to counterattack, contributing to force degradation. And the emphasis on relatively there is kind of an understatement. Many analysts, including the ones at the ISW, are hedging their bets and or expressing cautious optimism that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is within striking distance of achieving its objectives. But I'm comfortable expressing a higher level of confidence than that. 
I don't see how Russian defensive forces can defend their current positions along the entire front, especially in the Bakhmut and southern Zaporizhia operational directions. I have a few reasons for my more bullish outlook. First, the Russian command structure does not allow for negative feedback to flow up the chain of command. In Russia's authoritarian sistema, telling superiors good news, whether it's the truth or not, is rewarded, while calling attention to deficiencies is punished. Remember Commander Popov, who was relieved of his duties for saying he needed more counter-battery equipment? Many Russian commanders and millboggers have been fired, arrested, or even killed for simply telling the truth. And while there's some of that going on in the Ukrainian armed forces, there is much, much, much less. Second, Ukrainian forces regularly rotate from the front, whereas Russian forces aren't regularly rotating. They also lack adequate supplies, effective leadership, and suffer from very, very poor morale. If you take Ukrzalznitsya, the Ukrainian railway service, you'll notice plenty of soldiers returning from their deployments for some rest and even vacation. Third, Allied support for Ukraine remains steadfast, with the group of liberal, small l, democratic, small d, democracies, continuing to pledge massive amounts of military, economic, and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, although it's never enough. And fourth, Ukraine, even on the counteroffensive, is maintaining a favorable attrition gradient compared to Russia. We expect this gradient to be even more favorable as new capabilities from allies enter the battle space. So, here's what we'll be watching so you can watch for it too. The highest levels of Ukrainian military leadership have indicated that U.S. Abrams, U.K. Challenger 2s, and German Leopard main battle tanks, or MBTs, will be used for breakthrough operations or in limited combined arms operations. Side note, the New York Times confirmed that the first Abrams tanks are already in Ukraine. We're seeing Ukraine operate armored vehicles beyond the first three Sirovakin lines south of Orekhiv. We'll be watching carefully for any Western MBTs to appear in this area, as it would add even more evidence pointing to a Ukrainian breakthrough. More coverage on Crimea and Atakums after a quick break from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. In the Black Sea and occupied Crimea, Russia continues to suffer from devastating losses. On Friday, September 22nd, Operation Crab Trap was executed, according to GUR Chief Kirill Budanov. 
Ukraine struck the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol with Storm Shadow and or Scalp-EG missiles in a midday attack, completely destroying the building. Videos flooded social media. One showed a Storm Shadow or Scalp-EG missile flying at relatively low altitude over the Crimean Peninsula. Several others showed a subsequent explosion at the Black Sea Fleet headquarters building. The GUR and SBU worked with a partisan network of Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars called Atesh, which played a pivotal role in gathering intelligence needed to execute the mission. According to an interview with the Kyiv Post, Atesh members were able to bribe Russian officers or soldiers in exchange for critical information on the movements and schedules of high-ranking Russian Black Sea Fleet commanders. Apparently, Moscow was running late on payments, which made it much easier for Atesh to pay for the information. As a meeting of high-ranking Russian commanders in the Black Sea Fleet headquarters building was underway, Ukraine launched Storm Shadow and or Scalp-EG missiles and drones to overwhelm air defenses and ensure the target was hit. Admiral Viktor Sokolov, commander of the Black Sea Fleet, was reportedly killed. A picture of him attending a teleconference meeting with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu surfaced on Monday. Sokolov looked pasty white and appeared to be propped up on a pillow. So he could be dead or just in terrible, terrible shape. Budanov also said in an interview with Voice of America that Colonel General Oleksandr Romanchuk, commander of Russian forces in Zaporizhia, is in grave condition, and Lieutenant General Oleg Teskov, commander of the ground forces, usually based in Arctic Russia, is unconscious. 34 additional senior officers were killed, and another 105 were wounded. The building is a total loss. But that's not all. The following day, Ukraine struck the 13th ship repair plant in Sevastopol. This is the same facility that Ukraine severely damaged with Storm Shadow and or Scalp-EG cruise missiles on September 13th, causing severe damage to the dry dock and destroying two major naval targets. When digging into the various fires and explosions on the Crimean Peninsula over the past month, I simply couldn't verify exactly what was being attacked or sabotaged because the huge volume of these unexplained explosions and fires made it impossible. So I'm not sure if the 13th repair plant was struck again on September 23rd. Either way, it seems like 13 truly is an unlucky number for Russia. Or maybe it's just like all the numbers. The Kilo-class submarine Rostov-on-Don was in the dry dock during the strike on the 13th, destroying the submarine and severely damaging the dock. The damage to the dock will severely restrict Russia's capacity to repair and maintain the fleet on Crimea. In the September 13th strike, the Rapucha-class landing ship Minsk, which was near the dry dock, was also destroyed. On Monday, the Ukrainian Special Operations Forces, or SOF, announced that 62 Russian crew were killed during the attack on the Minsk. The Rostov-on-Don submarine was used to launch caliber cruise missiles against mostly civilian targets, and the Minsk landing ship was functioning mostly as a transport vessel. Three days after that audacious attack, the Ukrainian SOF provided some fascinating details into how they pulled it off. This story is giving serious Mossad or CIA vibes here. Informants working for Ukraine gathered intelligence about the probable location of both vessels in the Sevastopol port. After synthesizing the intelligence, the SOF took a boat to a waypoint, presumably in the middle of the water, and, quote, made the journey to the shore thanks to underwater means of delivery, end quote. The SOF used special equipment to conduct reconnaissance on, positively identify, and then secretly target the vessels with a special paint. 
After the first missile strike, the clandestine commandos helped adjust the trajectory of the remaining incoming missiles, confirmed the destruction of the targets, and successfully exfiltrated themselves. The local informants are, once again, highly motivated contributors to Atesh. Methinks a spy movie or two will be made one day about these operations. Following the attack, Russia removed all submarines from the port at Sevastopol. And no, no, I'm not done with this section yet. On September 17th, Ukraine sent aerial drones to Crimea. Explosions were reported on Cape Fiolent in the southwestern corner of the peninsula, at two locations in Sevastopol, and in Yevpateria. On September 19th, Russia deployed a smokescreen on the Kerch Bridge and blocked all traffic for an hour and a half. Locals reported smelling a pungent odor, likely from an attempted Ukrainian attack on the bridge. The attached partisan group reported Russia was moving its personnel from the barracks at the Black Sea Fleet Diving Center in Kameshovaya Bay near Sevastopol, where Russia trains military divers and saboteurs. Explosions were recorded that evening in Simferopol, the capital city of Crimea, and Feodosia. All Russian warships were evacuated from Sevastopol, mostly to Feodosia and Novorossiysk. Some ships would later return. On September 20th, explosions were reported yet again in Sevastopol, followed by explosions near Belbek Airport in the northern part of the city. Later that day, Storm Shadow missiles were caught on video flying across the peninsula. Within four minutes, videos were circulating of the Russian backup command and control center for the Black Sea Fleet in the Verkhnezadovye section of eastern Sevastopol city going up in flames. Andrei Yusov, spokesperson for the GUR, confirmed to Ukrainian media outlet Babel that a military target was struck with a missile in Crimea. Overnight on September 20th and 21st, explosions rang out at the Saki Air Base located on the eastern side of the peninsula in Novoferovka. The SBU coordinated the attack on the airbase. First, drones launched from the eastern coast of the Black Sea from the Ukrainian mainland swarmed the air defenses protecting the target. Then, Neptune anti-ship missiles were used in a ground attack. At the time, at least 12 combat aircraft, SU-24s and SU-30s, and Pantsir manpads, which are man-portable air defense systems, were located at the base. Satellite footage after the attack showed no visible aircraft and burned-out hangars, so the equipment was either destroyed or relocated. Atesh spent over six months surveilling the airbase, which was used as a training facility for Iranian-sourced Mojahir UAV operators. The SBU reported that 30 Russians were killed. In the air domain, the Ukrainian special forces and the AFU have been systematically disabling or bypassing Russian air defenses in Crimea. Crimea hosts at least six advanced S-400 air defense complexes, each with up to six launchers that can be dispersed across two to three locations, receiving targeting information from their radars. There are likely more S-300 anti-aircraft variants as well. Ukraine has the ability to evade the air defenses by overwhelming them with drones, using decoys, engaging on-site reconnaissance, destroying the radars, destroying batteries, and using low-altitude anti-ship missiles such as the Neptune. Ukraine has already destroyed two S-400 Triumph air defense batteries on the western coast of Crimea in Cape Tarkankut and Yevpateria. And as I write this on September 25th, there are reports of explosions in Jankoy, where there is an airbase and an S-400 radar signal. Additional explosions were reported in Sevastopol. The Karsh Bridge also closed to traffic temporarily. 
At sea, Ukraine expelled Russian surveillance units located on the Boyko Towers oil rigs in the Black Sea that had been occupied by Russia since 2014. The Rapucha-class landing ship Minsk, sister ship the Olenogorsky Gornyak, was taken out of commission on August 3rd by next-generation uncrewed surface vessels, or USVs, or maritime drones. Two days later, the Russian oil tanker SIG was attacked by USVs and significantly damaged. In mid-August, Ukraine unsuccessfully attacked the arms transport ship Sparta 4, and will undoubtedly try again. The same day as the dramatic destruction of the Minsk landing ship in the Rostov-on-Don submarine, Ukrainian USVs targeted Russian oil tanker Yaz and weapons transporter Ursa Minor. The Russian MOD claims that the patrol ships Vasily Bikov and Sergei Kotov destroyed the USVs, although the Sergei Kotov was damaged enough to require repair. The next day, on September 14th, Ukraine attacked the Bora-class missile corvette Samum with an experimental semi-submersible USV, taking it out of commission. You know, all of this happened and no World War III started, Elon Musk. On land, Ukraine is relentlessly attacking GLOCs. There are few critical road and rail bridges that connect Crimea to mainland Russia. Of course, there is the Kerch Bridge, which was severely damaged in October 2022 and July 2023. On September 23rd, Kirill Buldanov said strikes on the Kerch Bridge will continue regularly until the bridge is destroyed. And the Chonkhar and Henichetsk bridges connect Crimea to Kherson. Ukraine attacked the Chonkhar and Henichetsk road and rail bridges in July and August this year. Energy supplies, food, and water are all in short supply. Active partisan movements, such as the Tesh, are, quite loudly, crowdsourcing surveillance and spying on the Russian occupiers and their collaborators, even going so far as documenting every single car with a Z painted on it. Ukraine is setting conditions to make the annexed peninsula untenable for the Russians very soon. Deputy Prime Minister Irina Vereshchuk urged Ukrainians to evacuate Crimea if possible and to wait for its liberation. Time is of the essence. Every day, telegram channels of the occupation authorities openly advertise the deportation of Ukrainian children in Crimea to, quote, rest in relaxation camps, from which they never return. Some kidnapped children end up so far east in Russia, they're closer to the United States than they are to Ukraine. And finally, let's talk military tech. After what feels like an eternity, and after too many Ukrainian sacrifices, U.S. President Joe Biden finally announced that Ukraine would receive the MGM-140 Army Tactical Missile System, or ATACMS. The importance of adding this weapon to Ukraine's arsenal really can't be overstated. Based on U.S. government statements, it appears that the United States is sending Ukraine a service life extended M39 or M39A3 Attackums warhead, which have cluster submunitions for maximum coverage of dispersed, entrenched targets. The submunition bomblets are excellent for attacking airfields, defense in depth structures, armored vehicles, and infantry. Attackums missiles are launched from either the tracked M270 multiple launch rocket system or its highly mobile, lightweight, mostly wheeled variant, the M142 High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, or HIMARS. Ukraine has made excellent use of the HIMARS platform, so much so that the weapons platform has spawned thousands of memes. Attackums are ideal ground based missiles for destroying what are called time sensitive targets, like grounded airframes, trains, artillery, or mobile air defense systems such as the S-300, S-400, or Buk anti-aircraft systems. And yes, even naval vessels at port in Feodosia or Sevastopol. 
Attackums travel truly at hypersonic speeds and can maneuver en route to the target. Traveling to their maximum range at Mach 3 speeds, it takes about 15 to 20 minutes from launch to the arrival at the target. In contrast, Storm Shadows and Scalpgs need to be launched from an airframe. Their routes need to be carefully planned, and traveling their maximum range at Mach 0.8 speeds can take between 2 to 3 hours to arrive at their target. The White House appears to be sending a, quote, small number of Attackums missiles to start, and I've seen estimated delivery times between next week and four weeks. I'll believe that they're in Ukraine when I see Ukraine use them for the first time. The Attackums the U.S. is initially sending to Ukraine don't have the much-vaunted 300-kilometer maximum range. Rather, their range will be about 165 kilometers. This is a marked improvement over current cluster munition ranges, but the United States should also send the 300-kilometer range attackums. The Ukrainians haven't shown themselves to be irresponsible partners at any point during this war, and have followed the constraints donor countries place on them, however misguided the constraints may be. Now, all eyes turn to Germany. The Taurus cruise missile is one of the last pieces of weapons technology that Ukraine needs to win the war. The Taurus shares similarities to the UK's Storm Shadow and France's Scalp EG in its stealth, low cruising altitude, maximum speed, long range, and precision strike capabilities and launch platform. However, the Taurus has a few distinct advantages. First, it has a different type of engine. Taurus missiles have a turbofan engine rather than a turbojet engine. So instead of air entering the engine, combusting, and then exiting, incoming air hits a fan in front of the engine core that diverts the incoming air around the engine core, allowing it to exit with lower friction, resistance, and shear. The improved efficiency of the turbofan engine enables it to travel up to 400 kilometers or more. Second, and perhaps more importantly, the fuse that tells the warhead when to explode is much more sophisticated called PIMPF, or Programmable Intelligent Multipurpose Fuse if you're sassy, it can sense what material it's encountering, concrete, steel, gravel, etc., and detonate to inflict maximum structural damage. The Taurus is the weapon of choice for taking out command and control bunkers, naval vessels, and, you know, pesky illegal bridges over the Kerch Strait. Beyond acquiring the Taurus, President Zelensky said his number one priority is to protect the beleaguered city of Odessa, Ukraine's allies need to send additional air defense systems, including the Patriot, Iris-T, and NASAM systems, and continue to send 155mm ammunition, cluster munitions, armored vehicles, night vision equipment, medical kits, and Shorad if they want the war to end much faster. That's the brief for today. Remember to check your sources and don't fall for propaganda. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports, and please check out our work on Substack. You'll find the links in the description. We'll be back later with the rest of the news. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye.